What's up, friends? Welcome to A Better Story Podcast. I'm excited to share with you today a conversation I had with Frank Schaefer. Now, if you don't know who Frank is, he is a author, an artist, a filmmaker. Uh, his most recent book is called Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God. And so if you like what he says here, you'll really enjoy that. Frank sat down to talk about certainty and the role of certainty in his life and how that affects his spirituality, his politics, the politics and the spirituality of others. Uh, and it gets really interesting. To be able to really appreciate the conversation, you should know a little bit about Frank's background, which he'll unpack a little bit. But Frank is the son of a very well-known Christian writer named Francis Schaeffer, who became famous as a Christian apologist, which is basically someone who tries to give the most rational explanation of Christianity they can. They try to reason their way to faith. So Frank grew up in this environment where there wasn't just a high degree of certainty, but people were actually training others how to be more certain in their faith. And where he comes out is really interesting. A uh, couple quick heads up. Number one, Frank doesn't mince words, which I really appreciate, which means that this is the first explicit episode of A Better Story podcast. So I think that gives us a little bit of street cred now, but if you listen with kids around for some reason, maybe to put them to sleep or something at nap time, because I don't think this is a very exciting podcast for kids. Uh, but if you're listening with kids around, just heads up, there will be a couple of words in there that you may or may not want them to say. It's your parenting choice. Second heads up, this one is way longer than most of the podcasts that I release. But I really enjoyed the conversation, and I wanted to share it all with you. Frank was really generous with his time and with his insights, and so I wanted you to hear them. And uh, I think you'll like it, and you'll enjoy it. So make sure to uh, check out Frank's website, which I'll put a link for in the show notes, uh, his social media presence. He's on Facebook and Twitter pretty actively. Go grab his latest book, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God, and then he's going to mention an upcoming project as well, Letters to Lucy, that you should also keep an eye out for. So... Enjoy the conversation with Frank Schaefer. And I'd love to kind of start with the role that certainty played for you in your sort of formational years, your early spirituality. I think that anyone who was raised evangelical or fundamentalist knows a certain degree about the role of certainty in their life. But you were, you know, you were a part of like the place that people went to for certainty, which it's sort of like certainty on steroids in some ways. So do you mind talking about that for a, a minute? Yeah, having been raised in an evangelical retreat center community called the Brie Fellowship exposed me from a very early age to a whole group of people who were coming to us that really could be divided into two categories. One were mostly secular university-age students who had heard about this kind of hip commune in the Swiss Alps in the mid to late 1960s, early 1970s, when there was a lot of migration towards spiritual centers of thought by people like the Beatles going to India to sit at the feet of the Maharishi. Uh, Bob Dylan was starting to talk about spiritual values in his poetry and writing. Uh, the idea of being on a spiritual quest for secular people in that day and age, especially young people, was not foreign. And my father and mother, though they were evangelical, Protestant, white, American fundamentalists living in Switzerland, because of their cultural interest in art, film, poetry, literature, music, and the fact that you were as likely to hear a lecture at Brie Fellowship on, say, the lyrics of Bob Dylan or take a trip by train for a few hours down to Florence, Italy, and have a guided tour around the Uffizi Art Gallery with my dad, Francis Schaefer, meant that 
the kind of students who came to Labrie from secular backgrounds were not really aware that they were in what would be usually described as a fundamentalist white American evangelical community. Or to put it very succinctly, no one would have confused the community with, say, what was going on with people like Pat Robertson a few years later, or Jerry Falwell, or even Billy Graham presenting the quote-unquote simple gospel, do you believe in Jesus or not? The discussions went late into the night. Because of the fact that my dad got a reputation for reaching out to secular, unchurched people, particularly student-age, university student-age people, evangelicals became very aware of our community and began coming or sending their sons and daughters who were in places like Wheaton College or Westmont or Covenant College or other evangelical institutions and who were running headlong into the kind of critical thinking of the 60s and the 70s, uh, where not only evangelical Christianity was being questioned, but because of the existentialist movement and a lot of the other thinking that was going on about media and issues of how you know things uh, philosophically, artistically, there was a great deal of ferment. And so a whole nother category of student began arriving at Labrie who really was someone, a, a, a young woman or young man from an evangelical background who was beginning to doubt their own faith. Uh, and perhaps they'd gotten involved in the anti-Vietnam movement or whatever it might be. And were gradually tilting away from that evangelical white American experience. And Francis and me to say for my parents got the reputation as people who could give you answers and could help you soar up your faith and put it in a new light of a kind of a reasonable Christianity. And so my dad became a figure very much like C.S. Lewis, who also was adopted in about the same time frame by millions of evangelicals who wrote books like Mere Christianity and of course the Narnia Chronicles and other things and presented a kind of a more scholarly, thoughtful face of Christianity that would make you feel good about what is essentially a very unreasonable faith. And I don't mean that as a put down, but it's a faith about miracles, people being raised from the dead, a virgin birth, a six day creation, a lot of stuff that the modern world, um, as, uh, you know, as it has evolved since Darwin and the kind of questioning by the scientific community of biblical claims, has had problems with. And so a lot of the dinner table conversations that I was raised with centered around two kinds of questions. One, very basic questions about Christianity. Why are you a Christian? Why would you believe in God? And my dad's answers, which in evangelical terms were called apologetics. In other words, making an apology for or a defense of Christianity. Or evangelical students who had been so turned off by the hypocrisy, the meanness, the exclusivity, the unkindness, the narrow-mindedness, the anti-cultural aspects, the anti-academic aspects, the anti-artistic aspects of a kind of a blinkered, frightened American, circle the wagon, fundamentalist Christianity they've been raised with. And for them, my father was trying to expand their horizons and give them a new level of certainty in the basics of Christianity by, as it were, dressing it up with a lot of cultural window dressing that made it look a lot more appealing than simply reiterating the kind of thing they might have heard at a Billy Graham crusade. And so my background, my childhood, my teen years were really 
a kind of a cauldron, an intense period of indoctrination, if you like, where my whole family business was either convincing people of the absolute truth of the Bible in every literal sense, and or reconvincing, re-evangelizing, doubting evangelicals. And so the kind of discussions I was party to were always making a defense of these very basic ideas and or trying to make Christianity look more attractive by throwing in a lot of cultural components and analyses in a way that left, say, your average Wheaton College student from some little Bible-believing family somewhere that had never done much or read much who felt that Christianity was dumb. After a time at McGree, they would leave thinking, wow, no, this has real intellectual depth and I can go home recommitted to Christ, no longer worried that I'm out of step with science, literature, modernity, art, culture, and so forth. So that's a very long-winded answer, but it, it's really the background I come from. And in my own considerations of the idea of certainty or what I call certainty addiction, that background has proved very valuable because as it were, I heard what I guess a lot of folks would have considered to be the best defenses of evangelical biblical Christianity. And they really fell short upon consideration as my own life went on for several reasons. One, just the way my family was swept into the big time God business of the rise of the religious right would cure anybody from any idealistic notions about truth for truth's sake. Uh, and the other was simply an intellectual journey in watching the way quite frankly, evangelical white American Christianity got on a path that it most recently has resulted in 81% of white evangelicals voting for Donald Trump, a person who at worst is a madman and at best is a total flake and awful poser who is misleading our country in so many ways and uh, has been criminally involved with so many enterprises, gone bankrupt six times. Uh, a self-avowed criminal molester of women, et cetera, et cetera, and they voted for him. So long before that happened, I got off that path in the late 80s and early 90s and became a much more secular person. But in looking back and trying to figure out why we were on this path that wound up with people like George W. Bush for president and now Donald Trump, why we turned the culture war in the direction we did towards this sort of bitter reaction against everything, it really came from this embattled sense of having our security of our addiction, which was a kind of a certainty addiction question. And Christians simply couldn't deal with that. And their brains, I think, have snapped in a way and turned very bitter and very dark and away from, you know, what they considered to be basic Christianity. Kind of, that's my past. And I would just add one thing. A, a guy wrote a, an article reviewing a movie about me recently called Let Me Be Frank. And in that, he used a phrase that I thought was really great. I wish I had invented it, describing the background I came from. He said that I had been raised amongst what he called over-believers, over-belief. And I really think over-belief, over-belief, over-belief is a really great way to explain so much of what is wrong on all sides of so many discussions today. If you take the kind of simplistic formulas of the left sometimes on issues like abortion, that once a one-size-fit-all, uh, <clears throat> you know, this issue's passed. It was all solved with Roe v. Wade. We don't need to talk about it anymore. The same kind of attitude you get in the New York Times about religion. We don't want to deal with it. We'll just make everything an economic proposition. 
the Democratic Party that doesn't want to deal with spiritual issues and just wants to talk about growth and the economy and Google and Facebook and how we get more big companies to create jobs and are missing the spiritual component. They're over-believers in a rationalistic, non-spiritual view of the world. And then when it comes to the evangelical community I come from, I think this idea of over-belief linked with my idea of certainty addiction really explains a lot. I mean, if you just think those two terms over, over-believer combined with certainty addict, I think you have a handle on a lot that has gone wrong in the last 30 or 40 years in the evangelical Christian community. Yeah, it's a dangerous cocktail for sure. And I, I love the term certainty addict because, I mean, literally in our brains, there's a endorphins released when we are feel certain about something. So there's an actual like biological component to, to certainty. Yeah. And you know, the funny thing is um, epigenetics, which does these experiments on rats and mice where actual fears are passed on through the genes in a weird way that nobody thought was possible where, you know, very frightened mice begat very frightened little mice children and the whole epigenetic studies of, of the human race, where you have sort of memories of things like the Holocaust passed on from Jewish survivors down through the generations to their, 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 their kids. And good experiences, the same, the sort of epigenetic love of beauty that you have in families that read together, uh, look at beautiful things together, travel, open minds, enjoy art. Uh, there's a lot going on here. And so, you know, this becomes a generational kind of a curse when you have a whole group of fundamentalist Protestants raised on the idea that salvation and the good life is predicated on correct belief. And correct belief can be, can be nailed down to a few theological principles that you've got to sign on to. And if you waver from those, you're not only wrong, you're going to burn forever. You have a kind of an epigenetic catastrophe that's rolling through our country right now as Pentecostal Christians, for instance, who were the root cause of the base that Trump never loses because they've convinced themselves that he was chosen by God to be president and is going to be like King Darius, who will be an unjust person in his own way and evil, but on the other hand, used by God for the good of the people of God. These crazy cocktails of Christian Zionism mixed with weird ideas about politics and so forth. And you say, just how is this possible? as a justification for keeping his poll numbers up with his base, the base of his base of support, you have to understand that once you get down that path of certainty addiction, it truly is a brain-altering experience. In other words, it's like going up to a, a, a heroin addict uh, or someone who's hooked on OxyContin and just saying, quit, um, you know, walk away from this. Logic has nothing to do with it. You don't talk addicted brains into changing because they hear a better idea any more than a smoker can walk away from a three-pack-a-day habit. It's, it's nothing to do with the logical, rational part of your mind. And I think the, the media has really passed up an opportunity to investigate this time and again. It's no good just talking about Trump's basic support in terms of white underclass America and job insecurity and a loss of industrial complexes in places like Pennsylvania. You've also got to look at why people, why there's this sort of weird confluence of, 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 of the white underclass along with Pentecostal Christianity, along with a theology that says you will burn in hell if you get the wrong ideas, combined with this kind of withdrawal from reason 
fear of higher education, fear of a secular media. The only way to understand this is when you start looking at it as a form of literal mental addiction. And it has to be treated in the same way. These folks, as it were, need some sort of a methadone clinic halfway house. And sometimes that happens. Someone like me walks away. But of course, I'm not very typical because I had these parents who introduced me to all these wider cultural influences, which um, I guess a lot of evangelical fundamentalist types would say, see, see what happened here? All that reading, all that music, all that art. Look where Frank Schaefer wound up. It would be a cautionary tale from their point of view. But, you know, God bless my parents for opening those doors in spite of themselves, as it were. You know, as I've said in some of my writings about them, they were better people than their theology. They deserved a better view of spirituality. <clears throat> you know, the freedom they gave me in exploring some of these ideas and exposure to art and literature and so forth paid dividends for me in that I realized there was a bigger world. Well, it's precisely that world that evangelical Christians have tried to avoid. I put it by homeschooling their kids or putting them in, in private schools, teaching only one point of view, keeping them away from secular universities, and then kind of directing them toward family ministries, which become these sort of nepotistic career centers, you know, in and around church communities, vast church communities, and so forth. There's a reason why evangelical white America hides from people who are not like themselves and tries to quote unquote, protect their children from them. And that is that they find exposure to what they regard as fake news to coin Trump's terms for everything he disagrees with, <laughs> toxic. Well, toxic precisely because it challenges their addiction and they literally can't stand it. They cannot stand that challenge. That isn't a question of choice. Their brains, the neurological pathways in their brains have changed. They cannot handle having that challenged any more than a heroin addict can handle you confiscating her heroin stash. It's interesting. I, um, I tend to rail on where I come from, which is a fundamentalist evangelical background. Uh, but you also critique sort of the other side, not so much in a, well, in a political sense, but also the sort of new atheist movement. And you kind of refuse to accept the three categories of belief in terms of theism, atheism, and agnosticism. And you kind of want to transcend those almost. Do you want to unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, refuse is a big word, but, but yes, I do. And that is because I've never met an atheist and I've never met a Christian. I've never met a black or a Jew or a man or a woman or a transgender or gay or straight. I've only met people on various stages of a human journey. So all these snapshots that we use, these categories to define beliefs, someone asked me what I believe about something. Forget God for a minute, just gardening. Let's take gardening. It depends on when you ask me, you know, what I believe about carpentry and masonry. I do a lot of building. I've renovated an 1835 brick house that I've lived in for 37 years. And before that, I turned a barn into a chalet I lived in in Switzerland with my family. And now I'm helping my son renovate an 1855 clapboard salt box in New England. And I do a lot of building. But if you had asked me 25 years ago, you know, what I thought I could build, it would be a totally different answer than I would tell you now with 25 years more hands-on experience. You know, Jeannie, sometimes I'm a cook too. I'm not bragging here, but I, I'm a good builder and I'm a good cook, okay? Um, and it goes way past the hobby. I mean, I cook every single day for our family, for Jeannie or our grandchildren or whatever. And I'm not being a smart ass when Jeannie says to me, well, how, how do you know 
uh, when this, uh, you know, let's just say something simple, you know, this chicken or these uh, fillets or whatever are done, you know, like, and she's asking for time and how do I know? And all I can tell her is, is I, 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 I know when they're done because, you know, I know it's a matter of experience. Well, similarly, I think an immature intellectual view, whether it's of a 60-year-old man or a 65-year-old like I am now or a 20-year-old, the sign of a kind of an immature brain is to forget that we are on a journey. We were constantly looking for patterns that evolved when we had to survive. We had to figure out, you know, if you jump from this branch to this branch, you fall and die. Okay, so I can only jump 12 feet in the trees gathering fruit. You learn something. And <clears throat> survival depended on it, pattern gathering. So when... When we come up with these layers of convenience, like atheist or Christian, if you strip away the need to belong to an identifiable community for, for human primate security reasons, you have to know who you are. The same thing that Indians in America, I don't mean Native Americans, I mean Indians from India, you know, grouped together like the Patel family. If you watch this great documentary called Meet the Patel, it's this family from Rajasthan in India who are trying to identify with their tribal origins by finding a wife for their son to marry within the clan. And we kind of laugh and say, oh, he should just be able to fall in love with whoever he meets. And it seems narrow-minded us. But of course, we all are in that position. Every human being looks for a corner where we feel safe. If you have the intellectual integrity to strip that away, to realize that 90% of the labels we give ourselves is that so we can identify with other people and feel like we have some little corner of the world that knows us a little better than mere strangers. What's left is simply a series of journeys and snapshots where we make these declarative sentences, oh, I believe in Jesus as my personal savior. I am an atheist in the mold of Richard Dawkins and I believe in nothing but the selfish gene, et cetera, et cetera. The fact of the matter is 90% of it is trying to identify with a group so we feel we have a place somewhere. And the rest of it is part of a journey in which anyone honest will tell you in 10 or 15 or 20 year increments that they have vastly changed their mind about things. That's why people get divorced, by the way. That's why uh, people walk away from their families. That's why people lose a certain taste for food. It isn't just a big belief issue. That's why as a young person, you know, I thought that uh, wheat colored bathroom fixtures were the height of fashion. Well, it was the height of fashion in the 70s, but now I look at that bathtub I put in 37 years ago and I'm saying, shit, I wish I had just put in plain white fixtures. What kind of idiot <laughs> put these colored fixtures? And it was so damn heavy, I had to get a crane to lift it through a skylight. I'm never getting this tub out of my house. I hate it. Um, <laughs> what, did I have in mind? what did I have in mind? Well, what I had in mind was the fashion of the day. It just seemed cool at the time because I was being sold this by plumbing fixture stores. You know, the older you get, the more you want white, plain fixtures that aren't going to define you because you know how stupid it is to get stuck with a wheat-colored bathtub when your taste is going to grow beyond that. And when now you suddenly realize, I've boxed myself in. All those traditional white fixtures, there was a reason they had white plumbing fixtures because when you commit to this color, this, this wheat color, now you can't change anything in here without it clashing. So now we're stuck with the bathtub and I don't like the color. All right. So when you get to these issues of atheism and Christianity and so forth and so on, 
I'm very wary of allowing other people to either label me or trying to label them because I know how stupid we're all going to feel 15 years later if we meet for drinks again. Because they're going to be saying, wow, you know, back when I was 25 years old, I was so certain that I was an atheist. And now I've changed my mind. And I'm a, I'm, I'm a tour guide leader to Buddhist temples of contemplation. I found something else or vice versa. And that's the human journey. So I, I think these pronouncements, these declarative sentences of belief, you know, I believe in Jesus. And so I have a personal relationship with God. And now I'm going to go to heaven. Okay, that works until it doesn't. And we're talking about something as ephemeral and, un and, and unidentifiable, let's say the word love. So I've been married now for 47 years to Jeannie. I got her pregnant when we were 17 and 18. We're still together. And having been in the literary and the movie business, I'm kind of an anomaly. People say to me, well, how, how did you do this? As if it's some big feat. Well, of course, there's no how to. We're just very fortunate and we kind of struggled through some hard times and so on. But the fact that we've, we've stayed married means that, you know, someone might come and say, well, tell me what love is. I'd have to tell them in the same kind of thing I would say if they say, how do you know you believe in God or don't believe in God? I would say, well, <clears throat> some days love is a very passionate, wonderful, warm, sexual experience. It's seen Jeannie this morning when we took two of our uh, little grandchildren to the beach. And there, you know, we were sitting it was like a snapshot of heaven on earth. And it would sort of fit the definition of what love's all about. You know, we built this marriage, we have grandchildren, we have these wonderful moments. But at the flip of a coin, love can be something very different. And that is Jeannie and I have a big fight. One of us gets in a car and says, we're leaving, or we want to get divorced. Doors slam, things break, it gets crazy. <clears throat> Not so much in the last couple of years, but certainly a lot of times during our marriage. That day, love simply means that when we finally get back together a day or two later, we hate each other a little less than we would if we didn't love each other. And that sounds crazy, but that's love too. It's that the hate that we have for each other. And I use the word advisedly in a really bad fight, the hate we have for each other, this long married couple that have had a passionate kind of love affair, the hate that we feel is less because under there, there's a thing called love. And I think the same thing applies to faith. So when you talk about you believe in God or you don't believe in God, some days it's to do with bitterness. Some days it's to do with reaction. Some days it's just because that's the way your mom raised you. Some days it's because you're reacting against the way your mom raised you. But don't kid yourself. You haven't come to some big, mighty conclusion that solves the problem. You're just talking about how you feel that day. And it's the same thing with marriage. You know, how do you stay married? You choose to get married every day. You choose to stay married. How do you, you know, how do you be a good father? You try not to be distracted when you're playing with your children and really give them your undivided attention. These are very straightforward kind of simple things, but that's actually what life's about. So when Richard Dawkins makes his big declarative sentences, you wait 20 years and you can read an article like I did the other day. There's a whole book that just came out being reviewed on salon.com, which is a left-wing liberal atheist organization, if there is one, criticizing him saying that the whole field of genetics, his idea of the self-esteem is all bullshit. Nothing revolves around self-esteem. It's the interwoven web of community and interdependence, whether it's trees in the forest or human beings. And actually the meaning and purpose is woven right into the fabric of evolution itself in a communitarian sense of interspecies and, and uh, communication. Human beings are no different. 
And so all of a sudden the world described now with another turn of the, 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 the clock, as it were, is a totally different world than he described when all of a sudden you had the birth of a new atheist movement saying, see, everything is related to our self-esteem. And that solved all my problems with my mother who was a fundamentalist. I don't have to think about any of that. She was full of shit. There's no truth there. I can move on. You can never move on. So we're all stuck here trying to figure out these things. And, and it's not a question of adopting agnosticism as a position. I'm not an agnostic. I'm just simply saying on different days, I feel differently about different things. Take it back to marriage. On some days, I'm very faithful to my wife and I want to be with her and we have great times together. On other days, I'm looking around saying, wow, I've been married for 47 years. Isn't it about time that I start having sex? You know, there's 100 billion other women out there. Why haven't I slept with all of them? And that's the same guy. It, and it's not somebody that goes away. That, that is me. That's how I think. That's how people are when they're honest with themselves. Well, the same thing comes to these other issues. So why anybody expects the area of faith versus science to be any more resolvable than something as mundane and as a relationship and fidelity within a marriage? I think people really expect too much of these philosophical areas. In fact, it's the other way around. I mean, I'm, you know, obviously I'm being a little bit of a smart ass, but I wrote somewhere and I think it's a good point that the only thing that I have actual certainty about once in a while is minor household appliances. You know, I can read the literature on a new toaster or refrigerator and get a pretty good idea of what I'm buying. When it comes to love, God, who the person Jesus was, what happens to you after you die, if anything, you have to be kidding me. Of course, nobody knows anything. So we, we go through life in stages and young people never can imagine they're gonna to get to a different stage in their life. They will. Older people look back and if they have some honesty, they wring their hands in horror over the way they were so certain of things they now know that you can't be certain of. And I'm not just talking about the God question. I mean, everything. You pretend you choose things until you're wise enough or honest enough to stop pretending. And I'll give you an example from my own life. I'm a painter and a writer. Did I choose these professions? No. My mom homeschooled me in a Christian mission, and so my education was shit. And then I went off to public, to, to uh, not public school, to private boarding schools in England for five years. I ran away. You know, I wanted to be a doctor. But doctors that are dyslexic, before they can find out what dyslexia is, who grew up in weird evangelical missionary families don't happen very often. And so I gravitated toward the arts. I'm a good writer. I'm a pretty good painter. And I made a living at it. But I'm like Nina Simone, who wanted to be a classical music performer. And then somebody said to her, look, you're black. And you, you play piano in bars. Now you've got to be a singer. And she woke up one morning, and she's this great black blues singer who helped lead the civil rights movement. She didn't choose any of that. Her favorite composer was Bach. That's how real life is. And I think people who think they can sit back and choose their philosophy, read another book by Dawkins and be convinced of everything, and that solves their problem, or read the Bible again, or go to Brie and get their faith back on track as if that's going to last more than six months until the next onslaught of doubt comes. That's how it really is. And it's the same for marriage and relationships. You're not going to ever get to a place where you're all set and now you don't have to worry anymore. You know, I mean, I hate to be blunt. I don't, your, I don't know what your vocabulary is here, but, you know, basically, I'm 65, but I could 
you know, I, I'll never get past the stage where I've got to work to not fuck around or I'm going to blow up my marriage. And then on top of that, now I blow up a relationship with children and my grandchildren that I live for. Am I ever going to get cured of that? No, never, because I'm a male of the, the, the homo sapien species and that's how the world works. And so you don't say, oh, well, I've, I've, I've figured it all out. Now I've got it nailed. No, you got to figure it out every single day. Yeah, I think that's a, a scary proposition for some people because of the role of certainty. Uh, but what you articulate and what you are articulating, I think, is on the other side of that, when you get past that, that certainty addiction, there is, a, I think, a deeper appreciation for wonder and beauty and life that is available that you articulate really well. Uh, so it's not like people are jumping, I don't think, into this like dark abyss of uncertainty. Uh, they are potentially opening doors to whole new appreciations of the different aspects of life. Have you found that true? Yeah, very much so. I mean, that that's genuinely, you know, I've been working for the last four years on a book called Letter to Lucy, which is just to my granddaughter, Lucy, but to Lucy, our ancestor. Lucy, the first fossil record of a human female, and it's kind of telling her what we've done with ourselves since gaining consciousness and talking to my granddaughter about what I hope she does with herself and talking about what I do with her, precisely from the point of view of opening doors to beauty. And I think, you know, for me personally, what I'm trying to express in that book, which is a multimedia project that will first be on iBooks probably soon after Christmas, this uh, coming Christmas in 2017 um, is one very simple idea, and that is the intrinsic worth of beauty. If there's anything I accept on faith, simply because of the evidence of my own eyes every single day, it's the intrinsic worth of beauty. And I'm not talking about artsy-fartsy beauty pretty pictures, although some pretty pictures are included in that. I am talking about the intrinsic worth of beauty of simply being alive with every breath we take. People talk about meaning and purpose, and to me, it begins with this idea of being conscious. You know, we're biological machines, no question about it, but we look at the world through spiritual eyes. We are conscious of the beauty of our experiences. That's what we strive for. The only reason we fear death is because we've had so many beautiful experiences in life, however small or large, that we, we hate to see that end. We want to still look around. We want to still see. And it isn't just the big stuff, you know, it is, that's one reason I like the fact I work with my hands. It opens so many doors. You know, you build a good masonry wall with granite that was blasted from a local quarry that you got for free because you were lucky enough to go by one day and the guy trucking it out said, take all you want. And you build a wall and it reminds you of a wall you used to see with your dad when you'd hike in Italy with him up over old Roman Pass when I was an eight or nine-year-old and wished I was down swimming and said, oh, why do we have to go hiking? I don't remember much about the swimming, but I remember every, every step of those walks with my father. You know, this is the beautiful experience of simply being alive. So the meaning you find that crosses generations, that crosses the time frame of our own life, you know, our, our bid for immortality, as it were, is those experiences. And some of them are very big and, and meaningful to us. And some of them are just watching a scene in a movie uh, that goes by and you just are looking at what the actress or the dancer, whoever has put, you know, a whole life on the line to bring you that moment of perfection. Uh, a great classical concert, you know, when that singer, you know, when that lyric soprano stands up and she sings, you know, her part in, in 
St. John's Passion uh, by Bach, you're hearing, you're hearing a dedication to the idea of the intrinsic worth of beauty told through the generation. Someone kept that music alive. Bach did the work necessary to become Bach and write it. That lyric soprano started practicing when she was six, and now she's 30. You know, this is where we, this is where we connect with the eternal. And it's that eternal quest for meaning. And that is the meaning. And for people who want a spiritual kind of a, a certainty in their life, I'd say that is a kind of a certainty. And that is, this is something. It's not nothing. This is what we live for. This is what we crave. That's why we have high aspirations. And I advise people who are very career-driven to step back from that and realize that, you know, this career drive makes no sense if they're foregoing basic human experiences to achieve it. You know, that extra master's degree or PhD is not worth getting if it means that you don't marry the man or the woman or if your gay partner with the gay partner who you've been in love with. You're not going to get too many bites at that apple. Career schmear, you know, there's always another way to earn a living. But the beautiful moments in life, the, you know, the connection I have with my grandchildren right now, that's irreplaceable. And so is allowing the impact of art and creativity of other human beings to touch us. So is nature around us. So is just the act of being alive. You know, I've had warm conversations in places I didn't expect them with, with airline personnel who, you know, as someone who's traveled a lot, I kind of have an, uh, an allergic reaction to travel. You know, and yet there you suddenly connect with someone who did a little extra work to get you on a flight after you miss a flight. And there's a warm moment of understanding where, listen, you know, they walk in your shoes for a moment and it, and, it, and it leaves you feeling that life has just revealed a great purpose to you of sympathy and empathy in some place you didn't expect it. You know, the cop that pulled you over who doesn't give you a ticket and just says, you know, I wanted to make sure you're not asleep at the wheel. It's late at night. Stay safe. And you drive on just thinking, wow, you know, that's a beautiful human experience. What can I do now? pass on that little act of kindness, that uh, nonsensical moment that, you know, he didn't get anything out of, and there's no reason other than the fact that he has empathy as one human to another. You, you know, these are the things where we find meaning and purpose. When you're so locked into to certainty addiction that you only find your meaning and purpose in a theological proposition, and you keep having to go back to that book, but you don't actually have the living connection with the creation around you and your relationship with other human beings and the relationship with the creation, then um, you miss something. So I don't think that these things unfold in huge moments of revelation. In fact, it's the other way around. You need the stillness and the silence inside yourself away from the certainty addiction that is so loud because it keeps being hammered into you uh, or you hammer it into yourself because of your fear. You know, when, when you step away long enough from that, you begin to actually hear the music, as it were. You hear that off-stage chorus that I talk about, this kind of inexplicable, mystical, mystical aspect of our lives that flows through it and, and in it and under it that actually make life beautiful and worth living. Those are the moments we really crave. And the noise of theological presuppositions and apologetics and that sort of fearful construct, oh, I've got to hang on to this because if I don't, my life won't have meaning. How do I keep my marriage together if we're not both Christians? Blah, 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 blah. How's that work? What happens if my children are gay? You know, all these crazy questions Christians ask themselves 
the fact of the matter is what really matters is that, you know, um, I've got this lovely woman I live with called Jeannie, and we're both getting older. I go up in the morning. I bring her a cup of coffee at 5.30, 6 o'clock a.m. because I get up at 3.34 to write. She gets up a couple hours later to do child care for our grandchildren. You know, I bring her a cup of coffee. We talk together. She sits in bed. She tells me about the books she's reading. I, I put one hand on her knee. We talk. We're going to see our grandchildren later that day. And, you know, maybe we'll have sex that day. Maybe we won't. But the connection is so different than the kind of earnest, eager, striving 20 or 30-year-old I used to be who had all these answers and was always thinking about the next step of either career or how I could progress as a writer or whatever it would be. Simply being in the moment is where you find it. So I think it's the exact opposite. I think as you leave certain addiction behind or the over-believing as it were, and you embrace the kind of day-to-day -day existence of actually being in the moment, but really open quietly to understanding that the best thing that's going to happen to you this month is a cup of coffee with your wife you've been with for 47 years. And you see that as a luminous kind of portal to an eternal sense of well-being. You've got yourself on a plane which actually works. Whereas if it's all about, uh, you know, marriage is good because it's a picture of you and Jesus and how do you have a Christian marriage and all the rest of it? I can't think of any way you could kill a relationship quicker than that, except people on the secular side who look, say, at human sexuality as a series of irrelevant experiences that are purely physical, <laughs> or the Democratic Party that sees the economy not as a spiritual force for the betterment of individual human beings in their lives, while they seek meaning, but instead as a national, gross national product and high-tech innovation and the kind of uber slash google vision of the world you know it isn't just christians that fall into these categories so i think i think a lot of us have been eaten alive by what i call the utilitarian view of life you know whether it's like you've got to get saved and go to heaven and everybody you meet is a potential target for evangelism that kind of utilitarianism or the modern american democratic party who can't offer anything better than the republican party except a different set of economic numbers but a spiritual vision of life is intrinsically worthwhile and itself is missing across the board. And that's the note that I try to talk about in this book, Letter to Lucy. And, and uh, this was actually a multimedia project, fully illustrated with music and film clips and all sorts of stuff in it, which is why it's going to be on iBooks first. The vision that I'm trying to present is that, look, you know, take a deep breath, step back from all of this and find something, a completely different approach to what is worthwhile. And that's not unique. It's not a new idea. This is what the Italian Renaissance was about. This is what the humanists of the Enlightenment were trying to do. This is what the better mystics within the Christian tradition have been trying to do. It's not an original idea, but it's one that's being drowned out in our high-tech, busy, you know, view of, of life. And, and, and we're going to drown in our own activities and busyness if we're not careful. Yeah. And that's where... I love how you articulate, you still go to church, you still practice religion and to some extent, but it's in a way or so that you can be more open to those experiences. So that creates the space in your life for that deeper appreciation of beauty and wonder, not because you know that God exists or you know that you are doing the quote unquote right practice of religion, uh, but it opens you up to a deeper sense of that wonder. Is that, am I getting that right? 
yeah, you get that completely right. That's exactly the way I'd put it. And I'd simply add something else. At age 65, I'm more honest than I used to be 30 years ago, where I would have gone on and on about the reasons for going to church theologically or psychologically. But now I, I'm willing to admit, look, I was raised in a family that went to church. Therefore, I feel comfortable doing this with my grandchildren. I think something would be missing in their life. But it isn't that they're going to burn and go to hell if they don't do this. I, I don't believe in hell. I don't even know if there is a God that exists, but I do know that the practice of community centered around a spiritual ritual is something that appeals deeply to the human to human nature in, in many, many people, and I'm one of them, and that the distance of, of total abandonment of that kind of community for me is too far from my own psychological needs uh, and the way I was raised, the sense of meaning that it gives me in life, the sense of a baseline of value. Um, but that value for me is expressed very differently now than it would have been, say, when I went to church as a Protestant evangelical. I'm not there to hear a sermon or get the correct Bible teaching or theology. I'm there because during the annual food festival where we raise money for the little Greek Orthodox church I'm in, I'm on the cleanup crew and I come at five in the afternoon, do dishes until about 10 or 11 at night for three nights running, scrub all the pots and pans, it's a huge, big, messy thing have conversations with other people in the community, shed a few tears because Pauline, who is a very dear woman in the community, very kind to Jeannie and me, died of cancer last year. And this is the first time I've been doing dishes in the kitchen without her there telling me about how her mom's doing and her life as a child in a very restricted kind of background that I really was interested in. It's those bonds. Now, where else would I be doing that? You know, the local bar, you know, where you meet people and talk, it isn't the same. So, you know, I, I'm part of a community, been in the same community now for about 25 years. Uh, and I go, um, maybe I'm there for 10 minutes on Sunday morning. I light a candle in our little ritual. I go downstairs and get snacks for my grandchildren. I'm not a big church goer, as in sitting there through long services. I probably am never in church for more than 15 to 20 minutes, to be honest, on any given Sunday. And uh, I like the ritual of the Byzantine liturgy. Do I think that it has anything to, to do with truth, capital T? Yes, in the sense that humans respond to ritual, community, and a sense of faith in a greater purpose than themselves. No, in any theologically specific sense of like, oh, this is the tradition where you find salvation. I'd say salvation from what? I don't believe in an angry creator. And the reason I don't believe in an angry creator is, is because I apologize to my grandchildren when I shout at them. That may sound stupid, but look, if, if a guy like me who has been had a temper and been a jerk and an asshole for big chunks of his life with his wife and his own children can learn enough patience to apologize more than he shouts, and to always back off when I throw a temper tantrum. You know, if that's the arc of one life in 40 or 50 years, it's ridiculous to think that a creator of the universe is more of an idiot than I am and, and has learned nothing and is, is a small-minded bigot who burns people who don't have correct theology. It's insane. So my own, my own growth as an individual in a very short time, uh, a very short lifespan, because all human lifespans are so tragically short, you know, that very evolution of consciousness to empathy is obviously something that comes out of the very nature of evolution itself and pattern seeking in the universe and the way it is. This sense that we, we long for greater meaning than just ourselves. The fact that I like sitting there doing these dishes in church to help out a community. I long for greater meaning than myself. I want to contribute to something. 
these things don't come from nothing. So let's just say it all is just space, time, and chance, and that Dawkins is correct. It still has meaning and purpose. Wow, isn't it amazing? We wound up as these empathetic creatures that care about each other's stories, that long for a sense of purpose and meaning and life in our, in our lives. That longing itself is a vindication of an idea that life is worth more than just simply the sum of its parts. And so, yeah, you know, church to me is not a religious experience in the sense of belief, but it's part of the experience of life where I savor certain aspects of life there that I can't in other places. Listen, you know, I also take the, my grandchildren to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston on a regular basis. You know, I don't think I'm going to burn in hell if I forget to do that. But my life is richer, better, more, more centered on beauty and meaning because of that. This is all part of the experience of being human. And religion and spirituality, seen in that light, I think, makes a very positive contribution. When you spin it away from that, and it, it's like we burn in hell if we go wrong, then you're ISIS, you're Al-Qaeda, you're American Pentecostal supporting Trump. Uh, it changes entirely. Then you're a certainty addict, and what could be positive and beautiful becomes negative and judgmental and ugly. And exclusionary. And of course, you know, that's what most religion these days is, unfortunately, in its public manifestation, whether it's Saudi Arabian Wahhabis, Islam, you know, the mullahs in Saudi Arabia, the, the mullahs in Tehran, these people, that's the face of Islam the world knows. There's no use beating around the bush. They have a woman problem. You know, the American left can't seem to bring itself to criticize Islamic faith any more than evangelicals can bring themselves to admit that, you know, they don't have the, the lock on truth. Religion is a problem, but spirituality that involves religious practice and ritual is not a problem. And, and some of the better things happen in the world because of it. That's a good word and a good spot, I think, to, to let you go on, because I think you've, I hope you've teased folks uh, appreciation for beauty and have maybe knocked some things loose and their desire for certainty uh, that they'll be looking out for um, your upcoming book and they can read your last book as well that outlines this really beautifully and sort of gives people a taste of that too. Uh, so I'll put links to that in the show notes so they can check that out. Uh, anything else we should be looking out uh, from you in the, the near future, get the, the book, the multimedia project, other places people can connect with your work. Yeah, I mean, Letter to Lucy will be, uh, I'll be talking about it on Facebook page and my blog, so connect to my blog, and it should be somewhere between now and Christmas, we should have it on iBooks or soon after, and it's a very big project in just size, but it has everything in it, you know, art, music, the whole bit, so it's kind of a life of learning and philosophy distilled into one project, and I, I, I hope people who are interested in my work look at it, because a lot has gone into it. Well, thanks for uh, unpacking all of this, for uh, sharing from your life, from your experience, uh, both of beauty and pain and being honest. And yeah, it's, uh, it's been an excellent conversation that I deeply appreciate. So thanks, Frank. I appreciate the opportunity anytime. <laughs>